everybody's doing okay uh, while we're praying. Let's pray for rain. Anybody know how to do a rain dance? If you can't, can you YouTube it and find out and do one? <laughs> Thank you for being with us online tonight. We appreciate you tuning in. Um, uh, let's just open up in prayer. And I would ask some of you to ask about Sheila and her recovery from her oral, oral surgery. She hasn't done really well, so just continue lifting her up in prayer. Anything for her that even a minor thing turns into a major thing. And uh, so she's not, not really bouncing back really well. So kind of lift her up in prayer uh, tonight. And uh, God would just kind of help her out. He's able to do that. Amen? Amen? Father, tonight we're so grateful to be able to come together and once again, study your word. Lord, I thank you that, uh, Lord, you're that ever-present help in our time of trouble. And I pray, Father, tonight as we just open up, Lord, we, we do so with sincerity in our hearts. We do so with the understanding that, Lord, you bid us to come to you, uh, Lord, to find grace and mercy. So we approach your throne tonight, Lord, thanking you for that privilege, uh, thanking you for the opportunity to uh, express our, uh, Lord, our, our, our petitions and supplications and uh, Lord, even complaints at times. I just thank you for that availability. And I just pray every hand that went up in the building tonight, those that are online, uh, Lord, I ask that you would just manifest whatever the need is. Uh, Lord, bring healing to those that need that healing touch. For those that are traveling, your traveling mercies, Lord, for the teachers as they go back to school, uh, your hand upon them, students uh, also. Father, we pray for rain. Uh, Lord, the land is dry and weary. And, Lord, we just ask for, again, a, a, just a, you said when there is no rain. Uh, Lord, that's what you pr Solomon prayed, when there's no rain and the heavens are shut up. Lord, be attentive to the prayers that are prayed as we, uh, Lord, acknowledge the sin and turn. Lord, we just pray that you would, uh, Lord, send the deluge. Do it physically in the natural and do it spiritually, uh, Lord, through revival. Lord, I pray you'll be with every ministry on campus tonight. Lord, I pray that you would be, be with us in our time of study. Lord, I pray that you would just open our hearts and let us receive, uh, Lord, what the Spirit has for us. We commit this time and service to you right now. Thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. Amen. God bless you tonight. May be seated. First um, John chapter 3. So go ahead and turn with me there. Uh, in way of announcements, just a couple things. Don't forget, tomorrow is our food distribution at Yellow Jacket Stadium. Uh, we'll have plenty of ice down water. Uh, we'll have tents. We'll do the best we can. I'm hoping that this will be the hottest, not, not, I'm not hoping it's the hottest one, because <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm hoping this will be the only, we've really done pretty well this summer uh, with the food distributions, the, the ones that we've had, either we got done fairly quickly uh, early in the morning, like the one that we've done here, or it's been overcast and it not, as, not as intense. I don't think tomorrow it's going to be like that. I think it'll be a little warm. But uh, we'll, we'll serve over 200 families, and I know that God will reward that, that servant heart and attitude as we serve uh, those in our community that, uh, that need help. Uh, also, there was something else, and my mind just went. Anyway, I'll think about it right in the middle of the lesson, and I'll stop and I'll share it. Um, anyway, teachers are back in school Students start back next week, uh, most students here in Johnson County. So, so be in prayer <coughs> for, uh, for them, for the teachers. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're off the whole summer, you kind of get a little bit lazy, you know, and, and then all of a sudden you got to get back up and into the routine. And, and uh, let's just pray that everything goes well. But anyway, let's get right into our, our word tonight. And, and uh, we're continuing on with our study on uh, blessed assurance. We're going through uh, the book of First John. And tonight's uh, message is, do not sin. Uh, this is going to be a good one. So 1 John chapter 3, beginning verse number 4. We'll go down to verse 10 or 11. We'll, we'll see. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For, the pur for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, 
and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And we'll just stop there. May the Lord add his blessing to his word tonight. Now, as we carry on, we've, we've got a few more weeks in this. And again, I, uh, you know, I thought about just kind of condensing things down and, and just getting through with it. But I really think First John is a wonderful, uh, short uh, book, if you will, letter. Uh, and, and to take time and just kind of dig through some of the nuggets. Because remember, it was written to, to, uh, to, to help people. Number one, two things. It was written, number one, to counter false teaching or false doctrine. Uh, the church was about three generations old at the time of the writing, and so already there had been heresy that had crept into the church. And so he's writing, one purpose was to correct some of the error that had come into the church. And the second part of it was he was writing to the believers that were there to encourage them and remind them that there are some guarantees that we have in Christ and that you and I can be confident that the relationship that we have with him is not based on uh, remember chapter 1, he said uh, that the, this is that which was from old. You know, we were what? We were eyewitnesses, okay? So this is not fable. It's not myth. These are eye, he was an eyewitness to the things that he writes about. So um, anyway, that's why he's writing. So one of the things that we talked about last week is John instructs believers to remain in Christ while we wait on his, ter- uh, his return. All around us, we see... Uh, we see darkness encroaching, uh, and, and, and while we may not be able to stay the darkness, okay, uh, and, and I know for me, my personality and, and, and my drive, it bothers me uh, that I can't do more to stop the darkness that's flooding our society. You know, part of the reason I, ser- part of the reason I went into the military was I wanted to preserve the freedoms that are unique to our country. You know, it, it, it really is puzzling to me why, uh, that, that we have people today that are so ignorant of the freedom that we enjoy that most other places around the world do not, and how we're not motivated enough to preserve and fight for those very unique freedoms. It bothers me to no end, and, and, and same thing spiritually. It bothers me that we live in a time of such confusion. You know, we're confused about who we are. We're confused about, you know, I, I was reading today uh, just uh, doing some research for my, my next sermon in our series, and, and I came across a little statement that right now, as of 2023, there are 107 different genders that you can identify as. 107. I'm like, wow. Anyway, don't get me on that soapbox. I just, it's puzzling to me. And when I see the, the darkness, it bothers me sometimes that I can't do more to stop it. And so, again, darkness is encroaching around us. And while we can't do anything, uh, we may not be able to stay the downward trend, there are things that you and I can do to hold the line and stay the course. There are things we can do for our faith individually. There are things that we can do for our children, our grandchildren, uh, other the church. There are things that we can do to hold the line uh, regarding righteousness and holiness before the Lord. Again, John is writing to a group of people that have become confused. And, and so he writes to them about the hope that they have in Christ. Remember, part of his writing was to inspire confidence in the believer. And, and, and so that's why it's a good book to kind of pull apart and extrapolate all of the lessons and nuggets of truth that he has in there. You know, those who abide in Christ have confidence and will not be disappointed when he returns. That's, that's the truth. We, we have confidence that, that what he has said will come to pass. I'm confident that I've built my life on something that is not the passing fad of a pop culture, but something that is eternal, that has lasted. And, and so I have confidence, and when he comes, I'm not going to be disappointed. Um, in the, it is this hope, okay, we talked about this last week. It is this hope that motivates us to, uh, to live pure. You know, if I have this hope in me, what he said, what we talked about last week, if I have this hope in me, it purifies me. It causes me to live properly and righteously, uh, especially 
when we consider the great love that God has lavished upon us. Remember, he loves us more than we can even fathom, and he does so without anything that we've done on our part. For God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, so, so as we get into our lesson tonight, John returns to the theme of loving one another, and, and we'll get into that in verse number 11. Uh, he says it like this, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. But right packed in between there, we have a section, verses 4 through 10, that talks about living righteously, which is the call today. Uh, so another thing I noticed in this letter is John uses a lot of extremes, okay? And, and, the, and what he does is he uses these extremes to show the seriousness, or, or excuse me, uh, yes, the seriousness of surrendering to Christ. So he'll say things like light or darkness, or love or hate, truth or lies, righteousness or sin, Christ, uh, we talked about last week, or antichrist, child of God or child of the devil. So, so he uses those extremes to illustrate, again, there's only two categories of people. Again, not 107. There's only two. And it transcends male and female. There's only two categories of people, saved or lost. When God looks at humanity, and I know he made male and female, but when he looks at humanity, he doesn't see he doesn't see, okay, do you have a post-secondary degree? Do you have a high school education? Were you a high school dropout? Did you have, do you earn this number? He doesn't see any of that. Saved or lost. That's the two categories. So, so as we unpack these verses tonight, first of all, remember, this book, again, was, was written, it was meant to encourage true believers. It was an encouragement to them. At the, at the same time, when we read something like this, it should also cause us to do an inventory to make sure that we're really in the faith. Again, it's very important. I, th I think, you know, I, I used to mention this all the time, that at the end of the year, first of the year, businesses, many businesses will shut down their operation for a period of time to do what we would know as an inventory. And inventory is important because you need to know where you are as you set out on the course of a new year. I think sometimes as believers, we need to pause the hectic busyness of life, and we need to do that very thing. We need to do an inventory of where we are in the faith. So this book here uh, is meant to encourage true believers. Another thing is that the backdrop of this letter is to give believers confidence in their Christianity. Again, I, I, I'm fully vetted and vested in my faith because I believe he is who he says he is. He has done what he said he has, would, would do, and that his promises he will keep. He made promises about his first appearing all through the gospel, excuse me, all through the Old Testament, there were promises of his coming. We get into the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he came. He ascended in Acts. The epistles talk about living here, then we're told he's coming again. And I believe that the promises that he made about his first coming are guarantees of the, uh, the promise that he made that he's coming again. So I'm confident in, in my faith. Uh, you know, one of the many errors that, Paul, excuse me, that John was contending with was that there were people teaching this false doctrine. And one of the, false, the, the, the errors of their way, the heresy that they were teaching, was that sin did not matter. Do you know there's still people that teach that today? That sin does not matter? Um, Say, so some of the disciples, you know, some of these people claim to be disciples, and yet they live depraved existence. And, and again, I want you to keep that in mind when we get into verses 6 and 9, because there are people that claim to be disciples, followers of Jesus, and yet they lived a lifestyle that, dic that, that, that actually revealed that they were not. Because there were people that believed that it doesn't matter about sin, that as long as you say a prayer, as long as you confess Christ as Lord, that you can live any way you want to because in the end you're going to be okay. How many of you ever heard something like that? Sure, I, I think most people. There's a lot of people that believe that. Um, another thing that I, I noticed about this letter is John tends to emphasize important truths by uh, repeating them. You know, it's one of those things of repetition that, uh, you know, it's like you need to know this, you need to know this. Uh, you know, his favorite themes keep coming back, uh, and he addresses them, and he, and he emphasizes them in a different way. 
Uh, and then also sin, or sinful, or sinning, is used eight times in these seven verses. So how many know that sin's a big deal? Eight times in seven verses he talks about some form of sin or sinning. You know, we can, we can safely say that the theme of this passage is, a, is about do not sin. Verse 3 talks about purity. It's only, it's only a natural tra- uh, transition to go from purity into what is not pure, sin. So let's look at our text tonight, okay? And, and here's the theme. I think the focus of our text tonight will be this phrase right here. Christians are not sinless, but they should sin less. See the difference? Christians aren't sinless, but we should sin less. So, so let's unpack this. First of all, let's talk about the fact that rebellion, number one, rebellion is sin. Rebellion is sin. Look at what he said in verse number four. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, he says, this version, sin is lawlessness. Okay, so think about that. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, the word sin, what does sin mean? Well, in, in, in its basic form, sin means to miss the mark. And the idea would be of, of a marksman, maybe an archer, that's shooting at a target. So, so we, as Christians, have a target, Christ-likeness. That's our target. And sin is to miss the mark. It's like shooting at the target and missing it. That's, that's really the fundamental understanding of sin. It's missing the mark. Um, the word lawlessness that he uses in verse number 4 means to break or violate the law especially the law of God. So, so here's, the, here, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. To practice sin is to be in rebellion against God. To practice sin is to be in rebellion against God. It kind of reminds me of a story I read one time about a little boy who had gotten in trouble by his mother. And so she disciplined him like good moms do with their children, trying to teach him a lesson and, and it made him mad, so he stormed around the house a little bit, uh, pouting, and eventually he went into his mom's closet and shut the door. And mom didn't hear from him for a while. She, she kind of got concerned and started looking for him, and she opened the door to the closet, and there he was uh, in the closet. And she asked him, she said, she said, well, what are you doing? Here's what he said. He said, well, I've spat on your coat, I've spat on your dresses, I've spat on your shoes, and now I'm waiting for more spit. You see, that's what sin's like. That's what, that, that's what sin's like. When we sin, it's, it's like we're spitting on, on God and those things that are important to him. It's rebellion. I was, I was telling, I don't remember, somebody just a minute ago, we were talking, oh, out in the gym, I was telling somebody about a little video I'd watched of these, uh, I, I'm assuming they were theologians, but they were talking about the question in Genesis when God when God sentenced Adam and Eve, and, and, and the sentence was, you're going to die, and you got to get out of the garden. And so there, is a, there are people today that believe that God was too harsh in his judgment against them. I mean, after all, all they did was eat a piece of fruit, okay? So, so tell you how the mindset works of where we are today. And, and so they were asking this panel of, of learned men, scholars, if God was being too harsh with his judgment because of the, what they felt like was the trivial nature of, of their sin. And one of the old guys, I don't remember what his name was, but one of the old guys, they asked him the question, and he kind of looked, and he said, well, that kind of burns me up. He said, we're dirt. He said, how dare dirt defy the living God? Who are we to question whether or not he was harsh and I thought, whoa, you know, I mean, he was on to something. Sin is rebellion against God. And I think one of the reasons today that we wink at sin and we're not bothered by sin is because we've lost the perspective of a holy and righteous God who demands perfection. 
And, and no, we're not perfect. So thank God that my righteousness as, as a fil- is as a filthy rags. But when I stand before him, I don't have to stand in my righteousness, but I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We've lost that sensation uh, or that realization that we serve a creator who has every right to tell me what to do, how to live. You know, uh, John begins in this passage of Scripture there with the definition of sin. Again, and I think one of the reasons is far too many people today excuse it or take it too lightly. We just, we just excuse it. We've become so soft on sin. You know, we, we, we just change the verbiage. We don't call it adultery or fornicating. You know, we call it a, an affair or a fling, you know, or something like that. We, it, it's lost the potency of the rebellious nature of sin. We don't think much about it anymore. You know, and, and, and if we don't under, and here's the thing, the reason this lesson is important, if we don't understand that sin is cosmic treason against a holy God, then, then, then we're going to be content with just trying to find tips to live a happier, happier life and strive to find in Scripture to help us pr- improve our self-esteem. I mean, that's, that's what we reduce the gospel down to. If I so trivialize what sin is, that it's a rebellion against a holy God, then all I do go, is go through life looking for self-help sermons and self-help scriptures to make me feel better about myself. That's not, that's not what the Bible's about, you know? I mean, when you minimize the nature of sin, that's what false teaching is all about. False, here, here's the thing. If you want to understand error in today's world of uh, duplicity and, and, and Jesus, you know, the Bible says that, in, that there would be many Christs that would arise in the last day. If you want to distinguish between the real, authentic, and the fake, look at what they think about sin. If they minimize sin and the nature of sin, that's false. It's wrong. It'll lead you astray. Sin is rebellion against God, plain and simple. Stephen Cole writes, and I thought this was really good. Here's what he writes. He said, Satan's strategy has always been to get rebellious men to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. If God is not so holy and I'm not so sinful, then I don't need anything as radical as the shed blood of a sinless substitute to atone for my sin, end quote. Did you picture that? In a day in which we've eliminated a lot of the blood in the, in the, in the faith, we don't want to sing about power in the blood. We don't want to sing about what can wash away my sins. We, we, don't, we don't want to talk about it. He's saying, again, if, 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 if I minimize that sin, if I, if I reduce God, elevate myself, then I don't, I don't need that radical stuff. Because all Jesus, uh, anyway, i got to go through my teeth. I'll, I'll get caught up on a rabbit here, and I'll be gone, trail, and I'll be gone. See, a right understanding is central to Christianity. A right understanding of sin is central to Christianity. If we're not convinced that we are rebellious, a rebellious sinner, then we'll never see the need for a sinless Savior as our substitute. And you know what? Isn't that part of where we are today? See, part of a good evangelism strategy is to help people see that they are entirely guilty before a holy and righteous God, that they have broken God's laws, and that is why they need a Savior. See, the thing that stops people from being born again today is the fact that they've not learned that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And until they get to that place where they recognize that we all are guilty before God and we are sinners in, in, in standing guilty before God and we need a Savior, then, then we'll never accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. Verse number 8, John writes again and he gives us a description of the origin of sin. Notice how he says it there. He said, he do do he do do <laughs> Try to say that real fast. (laughs) He who does what is sinful, notice this, is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So there you have it. Where did sin come from? Came from the devil. Flip Wilson was half right. Devil made me do it. Not not quite made you do it, but I mean, he's... You know, sins of the devil. He said, hey, if you do sin, what is sinful, you are of the devil. Boy, isn't that a slap in the face today? Talk about stripping self-esteem. There you go. You're of the devil. The word of refers to an allegiance. 
or an orientation. What he's saying is that those who sin show an allegiance to the devil. Now, now we're going to talk about because I know we sit here and we kind of squirm because we feel uncomfortable because the Bible, John has already addressed the issue of sin. He said, if you say you have no sin, you make God out to be a liar. So we're kind of uncomfortable. You mean I'm from the, of the devil? No, that's not really what he's saying. You know, the practice of sin is rebellion. Confront, so here's what Jesus said one time, confronting the religious leaders in John chapter 8, the gospel of John. He said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. No, no wonder they wanted to hang him up. He goes on and says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what Jesus is saying is, you're just like him. You're just like him. See, we are most like Satan when we sin. God cre- uh, So, I mean, think about it. God created angels, right? God created all the angels, and he created them good. And Lucifer was part of that. He was part of that original creation of angelic beings uh, that was there. Uh, but he led a, he got pride became his issue. He led a rebellion against God, and, 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 and a third of the angels was kicked out. They became demons. Uh, many scholars believe that Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14 describe that scene of what happened in heaven. Isaiah says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, you son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid, the, laid low the nations. And then in verse 13, I'm going to read it to you. I want you to listen to how many I will statements he makes. Isaiah 14, 13 says, you said in your heart, this is God speaking to Lucifer. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of the assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See, here's the thing. When we sin, we're saying I will instead of following God's will. That's sin. When we sin, we're saying I will instead of submitting to God's will. You know, we act most like the devil when we put our will over the will of God. And when we allow to, uh, pride to control us, we end up sinning just like the devil did. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes where? Before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Again, we're warned about that egotistical mindset. So, so the question we have to answer, <laughs> whose side am I on? I, uh, I've always been a, for many years I was a big James Bond fan. You know, I watched, I like James Bond. I remember, I don't remember what the name of the movie, it's been a long time. But there was one episode about uh, uh, Roger Moore was playing uh, James Bond and they were riding through uh, South Louisiana down in the bayou. And, of course, you know how it is, all Hollywood act out, and, and, and he's being chased by one of the local sheriffs, and, I, and, and he's driving a boat. And, he, and anyway, at the end of the scene, the boat had crashed. The sheriff had finally got a hold of, uh, of James Bond, got him, and, and, and the federal man came over and whispered in his ear, you can't touch him because he's, a, he's an agent. And I just remember uh, in that South Louisiana accent, he looks at the agent, looks at James Bond and says, or who side? And, and, and I'm just saying, at some point, we got to ask the question, whose side are we on? If I sin, I'm not on God's side. That's the point. So we admit our sin, our rebellion, and then we rejoice in the fact, number two, that we've been released from sin. See, it's not all bad news. It's not all bad news. You know, sin is disastrous and demonic, and it makes us bad to the bone. <laughs> see if some of you is catching that tonight. <laughs> Sin is disastrous. It's, dem- it's demonic. But here's the thing. Jesus came to free us from its bondage. So, so it's not bad news. Again, verse, verse number 3 talks about living in purity. Then he goes into the sin issue and talks about sin. And ha- sin identifies who we serve. We either are for God or we're not for God. Uh, I like, uh, you know, when we sin, we're basically disregarding the work of our Savior. I like one pastor. One pastor put it like this. 
He didn't die so you could keep on sinning until your heart's content. Isn't that good? He didn't die on Calvary so your heart, you can continue sinning until your heart's content. I think some people live that way. You know, they feel like that because, and, and even Paul addressed this in the Romans when, you know, shall we continue in sin? He said, God forbid that you do that. You know, but there are a lot of people today that think that what Christ did for us at Calvary gives us a license to live any way we want to. Paul said, no, no, put the brakes on, man. Slow your roll. You don't sin anymore. And now if you do, you know, John even covers that. We have an advocate. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. See, the thing is, Jesus came to take away sin. Amen? He came to take away sin. Verse number 5, here's what John said. But you know that he appeared to ta- you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. That word, take away, literally means to bear away or to carry off. That's an interesting phrase because it pictures what happened in Leviticus 16. If you know anything about the Levitical system back in the Old Testament, whenever the Day of Atonement came, they would offer, there would be two two lambs that would be brought to, one to be sacrificed, or goats, I should say, I'm sorry. You would would have these, these animals that would be brought to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. One of them would be sacrificed. The other one, the high priest, would lay his hands upon the head of that goat, confess the sin of the nation, and then they would take it out into the wilderness. I don't remember the number, the days, several days journey and would be left out there. That's the idea that John picks up is that he came to do what? He came to take away he, the scapegoat. He came to take away our sin. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. I love how John the Baptist in, in chapter 1 of John's gospel when he saw Jesus Remember what he did? He announced the purpose for which Jesus came. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's it. In a nutshell, that's that's it. Jesus lived a sinless life so that he could become the perfect sacrifice for us. Daniel Webster, I I read this story uh, several years ago. I've been to, uh, with David Barton, if you know anything about the Christian historian David Barton. I've been with him, I think four times I've gone with him to Washington, D.C. Does a wonderful, wonderful presentation there at the Capitol. It's been many years since I've been with him. But on one of the trips, I remember going into the original chambers of the Senate and the House. You know, where they're meeting right now, that's, that's not the original. It's, they still have it there. You can tour it. And as we go, went into, the, uh, into these chambers... He's pointing out where people sat. And one of the people that he pointed out where they sat was Daniel Webster. He said, Daniel Webster sat right over here, and this is where he wrote, you know, and he had the desk there. And it was, it was very interesting, very surreal. And, and, and the reason I tell you that is Daniel Webster one time um, was, spent a summer in New Hampshire, and he went to church every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening. And his niece finally asked him, why he did this because he paid, you know, she knew that he paid little attention to far better sermons back in Washington, D.C. In other words, he went to church in Washington. Remember, the largest church at the time was over 2,000 people that met in the Capitol every week. So she knew that he went to church, but he was disinterested. So she kept asking him, why are you going to church every Sunday morning and every Sunday night? Here's what he said, and I quote, in Washington... They preached to Daniel Webster, the statesman. But this man has been telling Daniel Webster, the sinner of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. End quote. Wow. (laughs) See the difference there? This man preached Jesus. See, Jesus came to do what? Take away our sin. Number two, Jesus came to take out Satan. I like that. I use that phrase. Take him out. Look at the next part of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Destroy the devil's work. He came to take him out. I like that phrase. Notice the contrast between Christ who cannot sin 
and Satan who can't help but sin. And the word destroy means to render powerless, to render powerless or to loose from its hold. That's what Christ came to do to sin. He came to make sin powerless in our lives. That's what John's telling them. He's reminding them, listen, you've got it good. Because Christ came to take away sin, he came to destroy the devil's work. He no longer has a hold on you. Thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory. I kind of like what Paul pictured in the Colossian letter, chapter 2. Here's how he phrased it. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them at the cross. He disarmed them. If you were engaged in a conflict and somebody, uh, some of the self-defense classes, the Krav Maga and stuff that they teach you, if somebody has a, a weapon, how to disarm them, what do you do? You take away their, you take away the power, you take away their weapon. You disarm them. Jesus came to disarm the devil, to make him powerless, to remove, you know, people say, well, I just can't help myself. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You know how I know? Because he came to disarming. Sin no longer has power over us is what the Bible says. Now, now in, my, in and of myself, I can't. That's why Paul said I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. I can't do it in me, but I can do it in him. Listen, if Christ came to destroy, if the Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, how can we align ourselves with the work of Satan again? kind of leads to the third thing, the refrainment of sin. Take away sin, release us from sin, refrain from sin. Here's the thing, verses 6 and 9. These are strong verses, by the way. But you got to understand, John is confronting the false teaching uh, that, again, taught that sin really was not a big deal. And, and, and if you understand that's what he's writing, then you understand the force of what he's trying to say here. He's bringing out this drastic contrast between true believers and those who have become very soft on sin. Here's what he said. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. There's the key to the passage there. No one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. No one, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him and he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. You see what he's doing right there? He's saying, look, if you, the, the word continue, it doesn't mean that we're not going to, listen, we all sin and come short of the glory of God, okay? So he's not talking about those, the sin of omission commission that we might do, you know, the good that, I, he's not talking about those Periodic things that we, you know, we fail to do something right or we, we get mad and we lose our temper. You know, he's not talking about that. He's talking about people who continue in sin. Their lifestyle is sin. He said you can't do that and identify as a child of God. It's, in, it's incompatible. If someone lives a habitual sinful life, it reveals he is not seen nor does he know God or Christ. And that's a, that's a tough statement. Now, again, it does not preclude those who are born again that are still struggling with some of the issues of their past life. Doesn't, because you know what? Everybody brings baggage. And we go to that song that says, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Thank God that he doesn't give up on us and that he works. But, you know, here's the thing. We're always getting better. You know, I, I told you my story years ago about how I, when I went into the military, I had a real, I had a filthy mouth. I, I man, I was a, uh, I, and it just, I'm just sharing my, my truth. I had a filthy mouth. I cussed all the time. I, I didn't know any bigger words than the four letter words. I rededicated my life to the Lord, and 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 I, as clear as God's ever spoke to me, he said I can't use you until you clean your mouth up. And so I started a daily prayer. I started praying every day. And I've shared this with you before, but my prayer was, uh, Lord, I, I ask you, may the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. And I would say, Lord, today I want you to anoint my eyes to see as you see, my ears to hear what you say, my mind to think as you think, my mouth to speak your words, my hands to touch like you touch, and my feet to go where you bid me to go. I prayed that every single day for months. And one day it dawned on me. I had not said a word I had not cussed, I had not, I had not slipped up, I had not done any of that. And you heard me say this before, but my daughter's sitting right over there, and she would attest, she grew up in my household, never heard her daddy use a cuss word. To this day, I don't think. I hope not. <laughs> I tried not to. I just put it there. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that for condemnation, okay? I'm just using that as an illustration. You know, it, I, I'm, so I'm not saying that the baggage that we bring disqualifies us and identifies that we are not part of God. Listen, God understands. We bring that baggage, and the Holy Spirit's job is to work in us to clean us up, right? So we keep progressing. It's the people who refuse to grow. It's the people who refuse. They're, they're the same this year as they were last year and the year before and the year before. The same sin they were dealing with 10 years ago, same sin they're dealing with now, that's who he's talking about. If I habitually live a sinful lifestyle, it reveals that I have not seen God, nor do I know him. These are powerful words, forceful words. But you know what? Christians are not sinless, but we should sin less. We're not sinless, but we should sin less. See, abiding in Christ means that we're committed to have nothing come between us. When we live that close connection to Jesus, then our desire to disobey diminishes. Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? The closer I get to him, the less I want to offend him. The less I want to offend him. I think that's where, why we're stuck in this quagmire in today's modern church and Western culture. is we've not, We're not concerned about offending a righteous God anymore. Because we're banking on, and it's a crapshoot. We're banking on the fact that God, he loves me too much to send me to hell. How many of you ever heard somebody say that? We're banking on God's great unconditional love, but we forget that he's also a righteous God who demands. You know, we don't like to hear that part of God, but that's, that's the same coin. He demands that we live, and he has every right to. To live holy. You know, John has already affirmed that Christians, again, John's already said that Christians sin. Um, again, the phrase is, do not continually to practice sin. First John chapter 1, verse 80 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, so what does that mean? It means we still sin. In verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. To say that we don't ever sin makes God out to be a liar. So, John, uh, so, again, John is not saying that we're perfect. He's just saying don't live a lifestyle of sin. In fact, 1 John chapter 2, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Again, he goes on and he talks about God's seed. When God's seed is planted within us, it grows. It's supposed to grow. And so here's the thing. We cannot live a li in a lifestyle of sin and at the same time expect to enjoy a rich, intimate relationship with him. I hear people oftentimes say something like, Pastor, I just feel God is so distant. My initial reaction would be, what are you doing? What's your lifestyle like? Because the Bible is near to the broken heart. Uh, excuse me. Jesus is near to the brokenhearted and those who are of, of, of a contrite heart. If I'm living that humility before the Lord in that relationship, I'm going to have his, he's going to be with me. So if there's a disconnect, I want to know, okay, where, where are you? You know, is Jesus a hobby or is he a lifestyle? You know, here's some questions to think about. You know, has my view of sin changed over the years? Again, given the culture that we live in, where now anything goes, you know, what used to be for late-night television or R-rated or whatever is now primetime or even on kid shows, 
You know, so has my view on sin changed? And again, I'm not, I'm not preaching and teaching legalism. I'm just simply talking about holiness and righteousness. There is a standard that we should ascribe to as believers. So we, we need to ask, has my view changed? In what way have I become soft on sin? Again, sin is rebellion against God. And, and as our creator, we have no right to dictate to him. He has every right to say, this is what you're going to do. You know, as a parent, what do we tell our children? When they say, well, why do I need to do that? What do you say? Because I said so. As I get older, I think it, you need, you know, they, they want a little more understanding than that. But, you know, when they're kids, because I said so. You know, God gets to say, because I said so. You got an issue with it, when we get to heaven, take it up with him. Here's the thing, when you get to heaven, you won't even care anymore. <laughs> You know, another question we need to think about, how, how have I distanced myself from sin? Am I, am I, is there a clear demarcation line? You know, again, we got way too many people that want to have one foot in the world, one foot in the church. That, that's that's going to lead you to a miserable life. Charles Spurgeon one time said it like this, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. <laughs> I like that. Numbers 32, 23 says, and you may and be sure your sins will find you out. Listen, God loves us too much to let us keep going down the path of destruction. Last one is this. i got to close. Righteousness over sin. You know, there are several tests uh, of authentic Christianity that we find in the book of 1 John. In verses 7 and 10, John makes reference to how we live and how we love reveals whether or not we're children of God. Here's what he said. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Pardon me. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Could that be any more clear? Anyone who does not do what God does or what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Oh, we had to throw that one in there, didn't he? You know, we might have been okay stopping there saying if he didn't do right. But he says, oh, you got to love your brother too. Oh, that's hard. Anyway, I won't go there. Here's the thing. The point of that passage is we resemble who our parent is. There's a family resemblance. If I'm living habitually in sin, I'm going to have a familiar resemblance to the devil. Because he said, you're not a child of God. We had a, when, when Sheila and I got married, we were children's pastors at a church, First Assembly in uh, Leesville, Louisiana. I was, when I wasn't deployed, we, we did the children's ministry there. And the pastor that we worked uh, with, uh, had, uh, he, was, he was a dark-haired pastor, a dark-haired man. His wife was a dark-haired brunette. He had a daughter that was dark-haired, and he had a daughter that was redhead. And the joke, and she was too young to really understand it, so people would always say to her, where did you get your red hair? Her answer was, the milkman. <laughs> and I, I, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping that they told her as she got older, don't say that. <laughs> That's kind of not good for a pastor. <laughs> but, but the idea behind it was, Where's the, where's the resemblance? <laughs> you know, where's the resemblance? A person's ethical behavior is an outward indication of one's inner character. Think about that. A person's ethical behavior is an outward indication of one's inner character. Jesus said in Matthew 7, uh, verses 16 through 20, he said, By their fruit, what? You will recognize them. I won't read the rest of it, but you know, he said, you know what, you can't, you can't throw out, you know, like I've said the last few weeks, if I go out and plant a pear tree in my backyard and I have apples when it comes to harvest time, guess what? I didn't plant a pear tree. It was an You know them by the fruit that they bear. You know, and I know, I know we live in a culture today where people are like, well, you shouldn't judge. also says you shouldn't be ignorant because fruit don't lie. If somebody wants to claim Christianity, but their life resembles nothing like their father, then they can tout it all they want to, but they're not believers. They're not. 
polls. I mean, you think about where we are in our culture today. Polls and, and statistics today reveal that there is virtually no difference. It, this is a sad thing. There's virtually no difference between those who claim to be Christian and the populace today. No difference. Particularly when it comes to morality, when it comes to materialism, and when it comes to marriage. There's no difference whatsoever. In fact, I've read there's a higher divorce rate in the church than there is outside the church. Again, I'm not making any of a statement. I'm just simply saying that's where we are. Greed occupies our world. Greed, greed occupies believers' world. We fornicate, we commit adultery. We cheat. It's as real here as there's anywhere else, and there's very little difference, and there's very little motive to be different. If we go to a church and a pastor gets up and he preaches about sin and it steps on our toes and we don't like it, what do we do? We go find another church that's a little bit softer on sin because we don't want to hear it. Well, he's just preaching legalism. He's just telling me I'm a sinner. Well, you are, and you need a Savior. But I know a man. <laughs> Amen? You know, John's saying, look, you, you can discern who is of the devil and who is of God by their behavior. It's pretty easy. i got to bring this in for a close. There was an article written several years ago in a, in a magazine by Jim, Dr. Jim Dennison, and, and, and what he was talking about was about Christianity and how Christianity is growing around the world. And it's, and it's still relevant today because Christianity, again, sometimes we get caught up looking at the state of the church in America or Western culture, and we think that, man, it must be really bad, but it's not because the church is exploding around the world. There's powerful things going on. When I was in Cuba, last time I was in Cuba was, I think, 2019 or 2018. Um, there, there are more than one million uh, new Christians in the last 10 years in Cuba where, where it is illegal. I mean, you can get permission uh, from the government, very difficult to do so. There are a few churches that, are, that exist there. We actually, I took a team down there uh, many years ago. We actually worked on a church in Havana. Uh, most of the churches there on the island are uh, garages of houses. People do house churches. There's thousands of them. And God is doing incredible things. Um, but anyway, he states this. He talks about uh, that there are being more than one, new million, one million new Christians in Cuba in the last 10 years. And he goes on, he says, but by contrast, in Great Britain, four times more Muslims go to mosque on Fridays than Christians go to church on Sunday. Four times more Muslims go to the false god of Allah than Christians go to church on Sunday. He notes that the number of atheists and agnostics in America has quadrupled in the last 20 years. And here's what he said that I didn't realize this. He said, but only 1% of college students currently attend church on any given Sunday. 1% of college students. That's a sad, sad stat. When asked to explain why the church is growing in almost every other area except in Western culture, in America in particular, here's what Dr. Dennison wrote. I quote, he said, in our culture, listen to this, God is a hobby. God is for Sunday, not Monday. Just like golf or tennis or any other hobby, God's a part of our lives, just not Lord of our lives. We're consumers in our culture, so we go to church for what we can get out of it. We judge the experience by what it means to us, end quote. Whew. Wow. Wow. So the question, is my faith just a hobby to me, or does it mean something? Again, there's no getting around this truth that's consistently taught in the Bible. As I said at the beginning, there's only two groups of people, the saved and the lost. Children of God are children of the devil. That's it. I mean, some people think there are three groups of people. There's Christians, and there's really bad people, and then there's a group of nice people. No, that's not, no, there's two groups. That's why the Bible tells us that we should examine to see whether or not we're in the faith. I'm going to close with this. Stephen Cole, once again, he, 
he uh, points out that in America, the American church, he said, he said there's two, here's, here's what his view of the American church. He said, we offer two options. The American church offers two options for the Christian life. Plan A is for the really committed people who trust Jesus as, pardon me, as Savior. They've surrendered to him as Lord. Obedience is their goal and passion. They have given up the right to spend their money as they choose because they have settled the fact that they are stewards of God's resources. They have signed up for a lifetime of service and are willing to do whatever God wants them to do. That's plan A. Many others, he says, have settled for plan B. And in this option, you accept Jesus as Savior, but you don't need to follow him as Lord. You can live the way you want to, love only those you want. You can give or serve or plug into church when it's convenient to do so. You can nurse a grudge and withhold forgiveness. You can live like the devil during the week and come to church on Sundays. You can have Jesus as a hobby without bowing before his holiness. Ooh. (laughs) That's like grinding that. We have options. Here's the deal, and I'm going to close. If we're saved, it should show. We used to sing that song, if you're saved and you know it, then you're, you're, you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, stomp your feet, say amen. Your face will surely show it. Not because you're clapping your hands, stomping your feet and saying amen, because your face is going to show it. If we're saved... It should show. And if not, we need to ask God why. <laughs> Amen. Stand with me. God, give me, a clean, give me clean hands and a clean heart. Do not sin. Again, I go back to what he said in chapter 2. But if I do, he's faithful, you know, I confess my sin. He's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Again, the whole point of the lesson tonight is we should never live a sinful lifestyle. We should always be striving to live sinless. Sinless. Not sinless because we won't be there until Jesus comes because then we'll see him like he is and we'll be like him. Right now we just sin less. And we should sin less and sin less. You know why? Because it's an affront against the holiness of God. Sin is rebellion against God, and this is the message that should be preached in every church in America today, that we have no right to sit in sin indiscriminately thinking God's going to wink at our sin and everything's going to be okay because it's not going to be okay because he demands righteousness and holiness. And without it, we'll never see him. And people wonder where God is in America today. I'll tell you where he is. He's waiting on a holy church that will forsake sin and seek after him. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer tonight? And I just want to ask this question as we close tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and say, you know, Pastor, I, I, I want to I I do exactly what you're talking about tonight. I want to sin less. I want God to help me to stand firm and to hunger for righteousness. You know, it's so easy to give in. It's so easy to to just acquiesce to the, to the culture around and to, you know, to minimize sin. But, but I'm hearing what you're saying tonight, and I, you know, I, I'm, maybe I need to recognize a little more the, the, the holiness of who God is, and I have no right to offend him with my sin. I want to live holy before the Lord. And I can't do it in myself, but I want him to empower me to walk in the Spirit and live in holiness before him. If that's you tonight, just slip in right, right back down as we close in prayer tonight. Father, tonight I love you so much, and I do thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you have come. Lord, you came to take away the sin of the world. Not only that, but Lord, as John said tonight, Lord, you came to destroy the work of the devil. It no longer has power over us. no longer has dominion over us. So, Father, I pray that for the hands that went up tonight, Lord, help us to strive for holiness. Help us to hunger for righteousness, Lord, to live righteously before you. Lord, help us as we grow in that relationship with you that we sin less, that we lose our desire for sin, and that we crave just to be in your holy presence. 
And Father, help the church today to recognize that sin is an affront. It's a rebellion against you. And that, Lord, you're calling a holy church, a holy bride, a spotless bride who has not defiled her garments with the stains and sin of the world. Help us to rise and shine in these dark times, Lord, as a beacon of hope that through Christ, who's paid our price, we can stand and sin no longer has dominion over us. And Father, take us out of here. Give us a great, wonderful, restful night, should you tarry. Be with us tomorrow, if you tarry, that we, as we distribute food tomorrow, keep us safe. And Lord, help us to be a blessing to those in our community, an answer to someone's prayer. And Lord, I pray that you give us a great week. Bring us on Sunday, ready to receive from you. Even now, ordain what you're going to do as you bring people from the north, the south, the east, and the west that need an encounter with you. I love and bless each one now in Jesus' mighty name. And we all said... Amen. Thank you for being with us online. I look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you, and I love you very much.